Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We start today with a composer and multi-instrumentalist, Mark Orton. The Portlander has contributed music to more than 60 feature films, many more than that, actually. His latest is The Holdovers by Alexander Payne, who previously directed Sideways and The Descendants and Nebraska. The soundtrack was recorded in Portland and features a whole bunch of Portland-based musicians. Mark Orton is going to be performing some of the songs from the score with an ensemble before a screening of the movie at the Hollywood Theater this Saturday. And he joins us now along with a ton of instruments. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me in. Yeah. What was your starting point for this movie? At what point were you brought in? Uh, Kind of on the early side as composing gigs go. Um, I'd had a working relationship with him because I scored his, his feature film Nebraska previously. So he had me on, in mind for this one early on. And he actually came up. He loves Portland. This is Alexander Payne. He actually came up for something like a week. And we spent time not even with picture yet. So he was still working on the edit of the film. There was a script, and I'd read it. Um, but we spent a week basically listening to music of the early 70s. It was really important that what I did either reflected the time period or at least didn't betray it. So I, I should I, we haven't even said yet. So the movie takes place uh, in the winter holidays around Christmas of 1970 at a fancy private boys boarding school uh, in New England. And it focuses on a handful of kids and two adults basically who are forced to stay at the school when it's closed and everybody else is having fun with their families and they're they're the holders. They're they're the ones who are stuck. So you and Alexander Payne you would just listen to records from the 70s or late 60s for yes, days? and actual records. So we were listening to things like Carol King. Um, I mean, we were listening to Cat Stevens. We were talking about what of that early 70s music, which of course is, there's a wide range of it from that time period, resonated for him with the film and what didn't. And I started working early on a suite of songs, much like I would maybe like write a, a suite of more like classical pieces or an overture or something for a for a film if I was working early on it off of a script. But in this case, it were songs. I mean, essentially songs without words, instrumental songs. Is Was it a luxury to be able to work on a movie before it was locked in? Yeah, it is a luxury. Um, and it allows for a lot more experimentation, honestly. Um, I think there's a lot of post-production schedules. So when, when a composer would be brought in, that are really, really tight. You know, you have a month, you have six weeks, and that can be for a full orchestral, you know, hours worth of music. Um, so, and that might be where yeah. so-called picture lock, where the, exactly. it's not that's not the the, the visuals aren't going to change. And they just said, we we need uh, fifty eight seconds of music here with an mm-hmm. emotional hit twenty seconds in. I mean, how yeah. specific are those jobs? Yeah, they're very specific. I like I like your um, optimism about the idea that there's actual picture lock these days. Uh, the way technology has evolved, it's always shifting. Huh. We, we talk about the idea of film composing being like trying to dress a running man. Um, <laughs> it has a little bit of that feel because there is a, especially actually more in the documentary world, I would say, when there's you're not necessarily on a script. It's a different, it's a different um, kind of way of working through. But yeah, 
let's listen to uh, um, the music that accompanies a, a pretty pivotal scene when, well, without giving too much away, the, the characters um, are arriving at a, a better understanding of, of who they all are, uh, and they are they're dri- they're driving in a car. Let's have a listen. a lovely waltz when um how does a song like this come to you and how much do you know about what's required in the scene um well i think in this case um it had like another dimension for me which was just a happy accident with this film it's shot um in and around mostly western massachusetts and it's a part of the world where I've lived three separate times and really considered moving, like talking to real estate agents mm. before settling on Portland years ago. Um, it's a part of the world that I really love, and I have driven these same roads. I lived three miles from one of the schools that were shooting at. Mm. So it, it had a kind of deep-rooted nostalgia for me. So it was easy to access that side of what the cue needed to reflect. Because as you said, it is a moment of some degree of resolution after a lot of kind of maybe animosity or they're they're adversarial um, up until near this point and so yeah I know it wanted that I knew I knew it wanted to have some emotion kind of baked into it some melancholy but also be kind of forward thinking uh, some positivity this kind of mixed balance that I always have to use with Alexander's films so, so you you write a song like this, yeah. and then do you what do you send him? I mean, would you send him just a theme, or or um, you know, like a, a whistled something, or something mm-hmm. on a piano, on a voice memo, or do you wait until you have something that really shows off in a in a closer way what you think it's going to be? Um, I think uh, no, I, I'd say well. So more generally speaking, I would send off kind of mock-ups of things. Uh, They might be, if it was an orchestral score, I might be using sampled instruments, MIDI, digital violins, and whatever. Um, In a thing like this, it's one of the benefits of me being my own engineer and also a multi-instrumentalist. So I'm playing most of what you're hearing there. Um, And so I'm able to represent it without digital instruments, without... Alexander then having to take a kind of leap of sonic faith Hmm. uh, from hearing digital versions of things. So I'm presenting him, you know, a a pretty decent approximation of what he's going to hear. That's also important for him. The the downside of that is if I'm needing to do that with instruments I don't play, I'm going to, it's going to be dangerous if I'm spending a bunch of my budget bringing in live players to demo pieces that might not work. And there are times when a filmmaker, in this case, Alexander Painter, somebody else will say, it's nice, but it's it's not what I want. Sure, and that I mean that happens all. That's a that's a given, mm-hmm. um, and that's part of the job is to kind of realize their vision, not just yours. You're not making a solo record when you're doing this, so yeah, you have to be open to 
I, one of the first things I always tell a director is that I had a happy childhood and they should feel free to tell me exactly what they think about the music and don't, don't pull punches because I'd rather know and I'd rather it inform the process, you know. Hmm. This is a kind of Christmas movie. I shouldn't even say kind of. It is a Christmas movie uh, and there's a whole variety of Christmas movies. How did that affect the way you wanted to create this music? We certainly discussed it. There's There are a large number of songs in the film as well as the original score as well. Um, so, yeah, there's... Uh, we discussed, like, what is the kind of more classic approach to a Christmas film? What instrumentation might reflect it? You know, one of the things we talked about was this idea of, like, um, like Sugar Plum Fairy, kind of Nutcracker Suite with the pristine celeste bell piano. And if there's sleigh bells, they're also pristine, but kind of turning those on their head. Um, so You brought a bunch of instruments. Can, I you, did. can you give us a sense for, for yeah. what you mean? Yeah, so with sleigh bells, for instance, this is a kind of more pristine standard one. So rather, we basically devolved them over time. I was very thankful for Revival Drum Shop here that has a hmm. huge collection of um, odd percussion. And so here's a sort of less pristine. So more, when you say, so more jangly and less sort of bright. Less pure. And, and yeah. yeah. Less pure, less standard holiday. A little bit darker. Yeah. And then by, by the end, we're getting into something like sort of sad Salvation Army <laughs> <laughs> solo bell. Um, so I did, I did actually, we kind of evolved it that way because it is definitely a dark, darker comedy. Um, likewise with something like the celeste rather than, I do use celeste on the score, but what is a celeste? It's a bell piano that if you think of dance of the sugar plum fairies, it's the main kind of chiming instrument there. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful, pristine sound. I love celeste and I use it all the time on my scores, but for this one, I chose this four octave toy piano to play some of the themes um, for instance, on there's a piece on there called 5-4 for Constantine, um, and that one actually is played on this toy piano. I can show you Yeah, here. let's have a listen. So it's sort of got... It does have a chimey kind of bell sound, which I do associate still with holidays, but there's something wrong with it too, just like there is with this Christmas story. Hmm. Let's listen to the the recorded version, the full version of one of the songs you just mentioned, Five Four for Constantine. What what should we listen for? What else should we listen for? Um, there are block bells and other um, kind of metallic percussion in there, a great string quartet of some local players, um, along with uh, somebody from the East Coast uh, that I bring in who's a ringer. Um, and then, um, yeah, there's, there's concert bass, uh, water phone tucked in. Um, yeah. Water phone. Yeah. That's a, I can show you the, uh, one last little show and tell here. Okay. So this is a thing that it looks a little bit like, um, uh, an NBA championship trophy. <laughs> um, it, it, it's, yeah. there are these angled, um, brass, uh, the rods. Rods yeah. that are all coming up around a circle. And then in the center, there is a cylinder and, and there's water inside it? There is water, which can give a kind of Doppler effect after. Oh, and, and you yeah. have a bow. You're holding like yes. a, like so a you can, violin you can do, bow. You can bow it or you can use a more standard percussion, the bowed sound. 
Oh, wow. And that sort of, um, the shimmery sound at the end is when you were actually um, moving the whole thing, holding it and moving it um, yeah. as if you were going to try to spill a cup of coffee or something. Right. And it makes the sound itself spill around. It does, yeah. It just changes the the pitch or the resonance of the bottom plate of this thing, which is quite thin metal. Um, you can also, you can use it with friction mallets, like mallets that you, super ball mallets that you rub on it and make all kinds of sort of ghostly sounds. Um like this. So obviously this does get used in sort of more fantastical films, more like sci-fi kind of stuff or hmm. spookier things. All right, let's have a, a listen. And all, all a lot a lot of the instruments you've just um, demonstrated are somewhere in the mix here. Let's have a listen. talking right now with the musician and film music composer Mark Orton. His latest score is for the new Alexander Payne movie, The Holdovers, and that was a song from the soundtrack. One of the bigger surprises for me in terms of instrumentation um, is just a solo flute at the start of one of the songs. Let's have a listen first. It's a song called The Glove, and then we can talk about just how you think about instrumentation. flutes you know um i use the flute throughout and they're not standard flutes it's um uh it's alto or bass flute that you're hearing meaning a, a lower richer yeah. sound yeah and um there's just a great person in town who i've used on a lot of different scores who's a band leader and a composer in his own right named john savage um folks in the jazz scene know him here uh and he plays alto flute and we've we have a relationship but in terms of the film I'm using it kind of to express the the loneliness of the character. I'm often using it really just solo a cappella like that with no accompaniment. So it's kind of to express the loneliness, even even though there's a lot of comedy in this film 
there's drama, there's there are lots of different elements, but there's a kind of loneliness at the heart of a bunch of the characters, and so that's how it's used throughout the film. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's lone, solo flute for me. It just that's what it brings brings to mind. So, how um, did you become a film composer? Um, well, I've always been a composer. I mean, my my dad. Uh, was a conductor and composer himself. Um, I started writing music when I was uh, like a kid, basically. Um, and I had a career with uh, first with a kind of fine art center band uh, called Tin Hat Trio, later Tin Hat. Um, that group was getting licensed. Our music was getting licensed into film as well as a lot of NPR stuff, This American Life and whatever, all things considered. Meaning you'd, you'd put out albums and mm-hmm. then music supervisors said, ah, this song would be good for this scene. Let's call them up, give them some money and put it in our thing. Yes. And that's that's how – so I kind of came in sideways. I didn't like you know, go to L.A. and start – pouring coffee for John Williams or whatever, working my way through one of the composer's um, houses there. Um, I, I was, the stuff was getting licensed. I also had chops as an engineer. It's a very tech-heavy career. Um, and I also am a composer that went to conservatories and can write for orchestra and all that stuff too. So I just, I sort of happened to have the requisite skill set. At requisite skill set, I also had burned out quite a bit on touring with my group. And so I started just getting these film opportunities. I could flesh out the licensed material. I could, you know, I could engineer my own stuff, work on smaller budgets uh, when I needed to keep it in-house that way. Um, and that's how I got into it. So I want to play another song from a different movie. It's actually one that we talked about five years ago. The movie is called The Reluctant Radical. And we talked with a documentary filmmaker, Lindsay Grazel, who made it, and her subject, uh, the environmental activist Ken Ward. B- before we hear one of the songs from it, uh, a song called What Price, I'm just curious how, if working on documentaries is very different from working on fiction films or if it's more or less the same? Um, no, I think it, I think it is different. Um, I think uh, there's a tendency with documentary films to go closer to wall-to-wall music. And that's, I wish that weren't the case, and it's not the case for all documentarians. But there's a lot more music to write, and there, I feel like music ends up often, not in this film, where there's a fantastic subject, the one we're talking about, Reluctant Radical. But in many films, you know, the, the director uh, is having to make the best out of whatever interviews they happen to get, uh, the information in them might be critical. The subject might be a terrible public speaker. And there are times when music has to act more the band-aid or, or more sort of it has to guide the audience more or it has to guide the narrative more or it has to I'm, – I'm often getting comments like, I don't want this to feel like the History Channel, but we need this information there. Can you help us move it along? Hmm. It's that kind of stuff. And not that that wouldn't come up again. You know, There might be a, a, a for a narrative director – might come to me and say, we need more energy through the scene. It's kind of lagging. But it's it. there's more of that, I'd say, in the doc world. More underscoring of typically a voiceover, too, where you're staying out of the way more. Um, less thematic writing, generally speaking, which I, I definitely come from the thematic side of composing. So that's that was a challenge for me. I had to kind of early on learn to divorce myself from music for the music's sake and understand its function within the film more and not just the function of its melody. There's a lot you just got into it. Let's listen to this, and then 
we'll take up this question of what the music is for. This is uh, from the movie Reluctant Radical. So, I mean, music can do a lot of different things in a movie. And sometimes in, in, in dramatic cases, it, it's almost like a character. It's very present. The audience is, is probably very aware of it. And sometimes that really works. Other times it can also really work. And the viewers may not even be consciously aware of the music at all. And, that, and that's good because you don't want them to be. The filmmaker, I think, doesn't. Mm-hmm. But from the perspective of the composer – is it a hit to the ego if you put all this work in and and the the proof that it's working is that your work is almost invisible H- how do you deal with that yeah i mean it's it gets back to what i was saying earlier about this idea that you know it's not your solo record this isn't like your chance to shine you're really trying to realize the director's vision uh for the film and you're trying to help in any ways you can uh, if you have some kind of agenda of your own for it, you're going to run most of the time into big trouble. Of course, if you're scoring something like Star Wars or some like sword and sandals thing, there's going to be a bunch of battle scenes and things where you get to actually step out and do kind of more um, forward writing. Um, but for something like this, uh, like the cue you played, I remember the directive is, you know, this it's a really serious subject about climate change and about one person's kind of sacrifice around it and what they were willing to do. Um, and I, the the directive was really just about keeping gravity there, like the the importance of even these small things that they're doing and the kind of day to day grassroots side of it. But to kind of the music ties it to this bigger mission that they're on. So that's kind of what I was looking for there. And to your question. If that's it's not why I'm in it. I, I I do get my chances and working with somebody like Payne and you can hear it in the music that you've been playing. I do get to step out and do kind of more lyrical writing. Um, but yeah, that's not that's not the point with something like the Reluctant Radical. Yeah. What do you pay attention to when, when you watch movies these days? Movies that 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 you didn't sco- score. Mm-hmm. What are you listening for? And and what kind of a critical ear are you? putting towards them yeah i try really hard not i i still want to experience movies you know not from a kind of technical so it's really it really has to be you really have to have made some bad mistakes or something beautiful for it to jump out at me so in that sense i mean that sounds like what i would say as a non-musician as a non-composer um but it's so it's interesting that that's more or less your experience that as Mm -hmm. uh, in an average (laughs) movie You're not um, hyper aware of the music. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's true. Um, I'd say that you know I have, my, I have my composers I'm drawn to, and and I'm going listening for the music more. But I'd say generally speaking, I try to appreciate the movie for what it is. And I agree that actually often when it disappears, 
and is serving its role that way and not taking you out of picture or waking you up to the fact that this is a craft, this is a creation here. That's, that's really when it's working. So, Mark Horton, thanks very much for coming. Thanks for having me. We're going to go out with one more song from the new movie. Um, the, the movie is The Holdovers. This song is called Into the Unknown. And again, um, you can see composer Mark Orton along with an ensemble made up of Portland area musicians who are part of the soundtrack. They'll be performing some of the songs from the movie before a screening at the Hollywood Theater in Portland this coming Saturday. We'll be right back. to think out loud because you love learning about what's happening in our region, you'll love listening to The Evergreen. This weekly podcast paints an audio portrait of the Pacific Northwest through the stories of the people who live here. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.